Hello, poker players. Let's help you get better at the great game of Unlimited Texas Hold'em. I'm Mike Brady, and I'm joined by my favorite poker player from Inverness, Scotland, Gary Blackwood. What's up, guys and girls? Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about what to do on the turn after you've check-raised from the big blind. Yeah, so for example, suppose you defend your big blind versus the button, and the flop comes jack-6-4 with two spades and one diamond. You check, your opponent c-bets, you check-raise, and your opponent calls. Again, that's jack-6-4 with two spades and one diamond. Commit that to memory, because that's the situation we'll be honing in on in this episode. We're going to talk about how to approach the different turn cards that can come so you can better understand when to keep up the aggression with a bet and when to slow down with a check. You may even learn when to pull off an epic play, the double check raise. By the way, this episode is a follow-up to our very first episode of the Upswing Poker Level Up podcast, which was all about check raising on the flop. If you haven't heard that one, you may want to go back and listen to it first. So I'm going to ask Gary about four different types of turn cards on this Jack-6-4 board. Straight completing low cards, flush completing spades, overcard bricks, and board pairing turns. We're going to discuss them in order of how good they are for our range as the check raiser, and the order I just said them in is that order. So before we get into that, let's refresh ourselves with what our check raising strategy should look like on this Jack-6-4 two-spade one-diamond board. So, Gary, can you give us a quick refresher on how we would check-raise such a board? Absolutely. Our value is very clear. We've got pocket fours, pocket sixes, jack six, jack four, six four, and even button versus big bang, we're going to have some ace-jack and king-jack combos in there as well. In terms of our bluff, we've got a ton of open-ended straight draws and some ace, king, and queen high flush draws. We've also got the lower flush draws at a much lower frequency. We also have a handful of funky bluffs in there, like bottom pair with a really weak kicker, and also some hands with some backdoor straight and flush draws, a hand like king five with a backdoor flush draw, queen eight with a backdoor flush draw, those types of hands like to check raise as well. Before we get into the different types of turn cards, a really golden piece of advice that you should etch into your brain here is the following. When the turn card is really good for your range, you get to bet really wide on the turn, even with your minimal equity hands. When the turn is really bad for your range, you've got to be much more selective and equity heavy with your bluff combos, and you've also got to slow down a little bit with some of those nutted ants. All right, so now that our listeners are set up for success with a solid check-raising strategy on the flop, let's go over those four groups of turn cards, starting with the ones that are the best for us, the low cards, the kind of middling cards as well, the cards that all complete straight draws. So we're talking, you know, a two, a three, a five, a seven. Maybe an 8, I'm not sure if you're, you're going to include that, but that range of turn cards that's on the lower side and completes draws. Gary, when you check raise on the flop and one of those turns come, what are you going to be doing on the turn? Yeah, so these uh, straight completing turns are, are by far and away the best turns for us on this specific board texture. Not only do we have all of our sets and our two pair and our ace jacks on the flop, but we've got a lot of turn straights and a lot of you know turn pair plus straight draws as well as a lot of really strong, you know, nut flush draws, second nut flush draws, etc. in our range. For that reason, we play these turns very aggressively. We kind of press our nutted advantage. Uh, On the seven of clubs turn, for example, the solver wants to bet 70% of the time, which really illustrates how strong our range is here. We've check raised the flop. You know, we've got a lot of straights on the turn. We've also got all those strong hands, as mentioned. So we want to bet these straight completing turns very aggressively with, you know, really a big part of our range. And the size that we want to use is, is an overbet size. So there's a little bit of a background as to why we want to use the overbet size. Because we're using a smaller raise size, because it's plus and versus big blind, the solver wants to sort of 
build a pot, essentially. Whereas if this was Big Blind versus MP, we use a larger raise size on the flop, and you'll find more turns use a a 75% bet size on the turn, for example. So when we use that small flop raise size, we tend to favor a larger bet size on the turn, because we're now starting to want to really build a pot. Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like bet often and big on on that turn. That's that's pretty interesting. And yeah, you just got to rifle some money into the pot with your very powerful range. Pretty simple stuff there. At least it sounds simple. So let's move on to the next category of turns, the spade turns, aka the turns that complete a flush draw. So now all of our high flush draws that we check raised on the flop, they're now flushes on the other side. Of course, a lot of our value hands like two pairs and sets shrivel up maybe a little bit now that the flush is completed. So Gary, how are you approaching these turns? Well, as mentioned, we're using a, an overbet size on a, a lot of different turns in this scenario, but the flush completing turns, we actually use a small bet size of 33%. We get to bet quite wide on the flush completing turns for this small size. They're not amazing for us. However, they're, they're certainly not terrible either. You know, The low spade turns are going to be better than the high spade turns. Given we're betting the smaller size, we still get to bet some of our two pair combos here. Even some ace-jack with the ace-of-spade type hands, and our bluffs are really centered around equity. So if we check-raise, you know, queen-eight of diamonds with the backdoor flush draw on the flop, we do not bluff this on the turn. Instead, we choose a combo like queen-ten with a queen of spades or, you know, king-ten with a king of spades. It's really important that when we're, you know, choosing our bluff combos on this this three-spade board, we've got equity. We don't have any, you know, queen-eight of diamonds type hands in there at all. Yeah, and that makes sense because our opponent's range at that point is quite condensed. And we're giving them quite a good price by betting small. So, you know, we want our range overall to be quite value heavy. And when we are bluffing, we want it to be equity driven. So that's why you're kind of going to be mainly using those like high spade hands on the turn. Like, you know, like Gary said, the ace five, ace of spades that you check raised on the flop with a bunch of backdoors. Now you pick up that nut flush draw. Of course, you're going to barrel it. All right, let's move on to the next type of turn, the overcard bricks. These are the third best type of turn for our range, aka the second worst type of turn. (laughs) So Gary, can you talk about how you would play a turn like an ace, king, queen, stuff like that? How are you approaching it? Yeah, so as you say, these are really not great for us. And our betting frequency goes way down as a result. You know, if you look at our betting frequency on, you know, an offsuit three or an offsuit seven, it's, you know, 70, 80%. But on these overcard turns, our betting frequency comes way down. We're betting, you know, 20, 30% of the time overall. And we're still using the overbet size, but it's for a different reason. We're now quite polarized here to really strong draws and, you know, really nutted hands. Uh, so for that reason, you know, we're overbetting, but for a, a different reason. So the button, when we check raise the flop, and again, I must stress, you know, we're using a smaller check raise size on Jack 6-4, big blind versus button. So the button gets to float that smaller check raise with hands like king, queen of hearts. So if it's two spades, one diamond, the button gets to bet king, queen of hearts on the flop, and then it gets to call our small check raise. So given the fact that we don't check raise very many overcard type hands, we've got the odd king 10 with the king, king of spades and you know queen 10 with the queen of spades, those types of hands, but they're very few and far between compared to the button range, which contains a lot of broadways that like to float our flop raise because they're in position, getting a good price, two overcards, backdoor straight draw, sometimes a backdoor flush draw as well certainly makes a lot of sense. These overcard turns are you know, really quite nasty for us. And how does that affect our range? Say the Ace of Clubs rolls off, we now never bet a marginal bluff like a gut shot or a no equity bluff like uh, King Five of Diamonds. Instead, all of our bluffs have better equity. Let's talk a little bit about Eight Five of Hearts. Eight Five of Hearts can raise the flop, absolutely. Not always, but certainly not never uh, because it's got a gut shot. 
the 8 is live sometimes versus the hand like A6. So 8-5 of hearts is completely fine to check raise on the flop at some frequency. On the ace of clubs, when our global frequency, i.e. how often our range wants to bet, our global frequency shrivels on that turn card, and therefore 8-5 of hearts doesn't want to bet. Whereas if the turn is a deuce or you know another really, like an 8, for example, even though we've made second pair, 8-5 of hearts still gets to bet on that turn because our global frequency is much higher. So you need to really think about how often your range wants to bet and sort of construct your range around that number. If it's a really low frequency, you want to choose higher equity bluffs, your nut flush draws, your second nut flush draws, your open-ended straight draws, and you want to just check fold with your, you know, your gut shots that you raised on the flop. On the flip side, if your global frequency is really high, you get to be a little more liberal with your, your betting range. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's one thing I want to kind of clarify there. You had said that, you know, the button is supposed to float on the flop versus your check raise with like King Queen of Hearts, which is no backdoor draw. I think a lot of people listening right now are going to think, oh, well, people don't do that in my games. I play like 1-3 or like low stakes online, and they find that fold. Even so, their range is going to have so many overcard hands that just have a backdoor, or maybe they float with ace-king. I think we all know that that people will often peel one with ace-king after c-betting, you know, because it's the no, no pair, so I, I don't blame them. So even if your opponents are folding those no backdoor overcard hands, they still have a lot of other overcard hands. So so these overcard bricks are still quite bad for you, and, and you have to approach them like Gary said. All right, so let's move on to the board pairing turns. So these are the worst turns for us, and Gary can explain why. Take it away. Yeah, so these turns are really disastrous for us, and you might be forgiven for thinking, well, we raised you know 4-3 suited on the flop, so isn't a turn 4 really quite good for us? And you'd be forgiven for thinking that, but remember, you know, we raise very few 4x on the flop, and our opponent doesn't fold a 4 when we check raise, so their range contains way more turn 4x, way more turn 6x, way more turn jack x. So initially you might think, well, the board pairing cards are really quite good for us, we've got lots of turn trips. We don't have that much if you really think about it, and if you really think about how much, you know, 4x or 6x you're raising on the flop, it is in there a little bit, but it's really important that we're mindful of the fact that our opponent bets you know, really wide with a four and never folds a four versus a check raise. So our equity is is really per our equity on the four turn is like forty percent, which is extremely low. And therefore the turn is really bad for us. Our global frequency is really low and we've got to be very selective with our bluffing combos and we've got to do a lot of trapping with our nutted hands. So the global frequency, I say this week in, week out in this podcast that is a, a phrase that I love to talk about. The global frequency will dictate how aggressive we get to be and how passive we have to be. So on the four turn, the six turn, the jack turn, our global frequency is really low because it's such a bad turn for our range. And therefore, we've got to be very selective with the combos that want to bluff. And we've got to start to trap our opponents because the turn is so bad for us. Yeah, because so often you're going to be checking and giving up because, you know, the turn is so bad for you. You can't always be giving up. Pretty obviously exploitable, right? Your opponent might even accidentally exploit that. So you got to mix in some traps to, to overall just protect your checking range. And one thing to add there too is these board pairing turns, they kind of act as blockers to our own value range, right? So you, you talked about the hands we check raise on the flop, jack six, four, we check raise two pair, jack six, jack four, six, four, and sets. Sixes and fours, maybe jacks, if we for some reason didn't three bet those preflop, who knows what situation we're talking about. But anyway, when the turn pairs the board, there are now fewer combos of all of those hands. So our potential value range also shrinks. 
kind of make their over pairs feel a little bit more confident because they're a little less worried about a set and two pair when those cards roll off and some of your two pairs get counterfeited. So yeah, overall, these board pairing turns, so, so bad, and you got to do a lot of checking. All right, so let's move on. We've been hyper-focused on a button versus big blind battle so far, so I think it'd be helpful to touch on how things change if we're up against a player seated in, say, middle position or under the gun. How do things change versus those positions, considering we're up against a tighter preflop range in the first place, and thus a tighter range reaching the turn? So things don't actually change that much. The same sort of concepts apply. If the turn is really good for your range, you bet extremely wide. If the turn is really bad for your range, you've got to be very selective with your betting range. One of the main differences is that we simply have fewer airball hands that check raise on the flop. So versus the button, we get to check raise really liberally with hands like king five of diamonds, queen eight of diamonds. Doing so will force the button to fold out their total air balls like ace eight offsuit, all those types of hands that have opened on the button and then see bet the flop. On the other hand, MP's opening range is tighter, has you know no ace eight offsuit, a lot less air on this flop, so we don't get to raise those air ball hands as often. So the overcard turns and the board pairing turns now become extremely bad for us. And as ever, our global frequency is going to be really low as a result, and we sort of build our range around that fact. All right, so we've covered that dynamic high-low-low card flop extensively at this point, so let's briefly talk about a couple other board types before we wrap this one up. Let's talk about the board type on which we should have the highest check-raise frequency, paired boards. Suppose you check-raise on 10-10-2, big blind versus button. Gary, can you give our listeners some advice on how to approach playing turns in this situation? Yeah, a really fun board to check raise on. The solver check raises here 27% of the time, and humans will really struggle to get anywhere near that frequency. Again, our turn betting strategy is dependent on our flop check raise strategy. So let's think about the types of hands that want to check raise on 10 10 deuce. We've got Jack 6 4, we've got some very obvious combos, you know, 7 5, 5 3, 4 3, not flush draws with the weak kickers, etc. On 10-10 deuce, we've got to be very creative. We're going to choose combos that have got backdoor straight draw, backdoor flush draw, the unblock ace high, king high, queen high that we're trying to make fold. So on 10-10 deuce rainbow, I'd be choosing hands like jack eight suited, queen eight suited, all those types of hands, those lovely three card straight and flush combos that can continue to barrel when they pick up equity. And we also check raise really wide with hands like 4-3 suited, 5-3 suited with a backdoor flush draw. Once again, they connect really well with the deuce. They can turn a lot of straight draws. They can turn a lot of flush draws. And they unblock a lot of higher hands. So if you have a hand like 4-3 of diamonds and you check raise the flop, you unblock hands like 8-7 suited, 6-5 suited, king-7 suited type hands that will fold versus your check raise. Quick fun fact for you all, all those hands, the 8-7, 6-5, and king-7 suited type hands I've just mentioned, are supposed to call your check raise on 10-10 deuce, but there's no way a human is betting 8-6 suited on 10-10 deuce and then calling a check raise, so your check raise bluffs on the flop are going to be even more profitable than the solver suggests. As ever on the turn, we build our range around equity. So if we turn equity, we keep barreling. Really cool example here. If we raise queen eight of diamonds on the flop and the turn is the five of diamonds, we keep betting. If the turn is the five of hearts, we give up with this combo. But we get to bet our four three suited, our turn heart draws, all those types of hands that have picked up equity, they continue to barrel. Same as ever though, these overcard turns are really not great for us and we've got to play them more passively overall. And that includes our value. I must stress we're spending a lot of time talking about how we construct our bluffing and our semi-bluffing range. It's really important that we acknowledge if the turn is really bad for us, we've got to get a little sneaky sneaky and, and check some of our sets or some of our you know, king 10, ace 10, all those types of strong hands that go hand in hand with our bluffs. 
Last thing I want to talk about on the paired boards, the size that we choose is really different when we're betting the turn compared to some of the other boards we've looked at. We're doing a lot of over betting on turns so far, but here we're actually using either 33% or 75%. And the reason for this is actually really similar as to why we don't use a big size on the flush completing turns. Our opponent's range still contains a lot of trips. When the flush completes on jack 6-4, our opponent's range still contains a lot of flushes. So when we're out of position, we don't want to be shoveling money into the pot into a range that still actually contains a lot of trips and still actually contains a lot of turn flushes. So we've got to be really mindful of the fact that, you know, a lot of the time we're using overbets on, you know, jack 6, 4, 8, or jack 6, 4, king, but on 10, 10, deuce 3, 10, 10, deuce queen, the solver doesn't like to overbet. It prefers to use either 33% or 75%. All right, I've got one more board type for us to go over, the super disconnected ones like king 8 to rainbow. We check raise a lot of backdoor draws like 9, 7 suited with a backdoor flush draw on this board as well as a relatively large amount of thin value hands like, say, king-jack, top pair with third kicker. Given that information, how do you approach turns after check-raising a board like king-8-2? So this is a really cool board for us to finish up with here, and a fun fact about this board, there are two out of 49 turns that give us more equity than our opponent. So all the other boards we've looked at so far today, there are a lot of really good turns for us, but on this board there are two out of 49 turns that are giving us more than 50% equity. Um... If we think about why that is, it's because we rarely improve on King 8 Deuce Rainbow. You know, no straights get there, no flushes get there. It's a board with no draws whatsoever. It's as dry as toast. So we can't have more straights or more flushes than our opponent like we can on some of the other boards that we've spoken about. So if we know there are, there are no amazing turns for our range and we apply the logic of we bet really wide on turns that are good for us, we can work out that there are no great turns for us and no turns that we get to just barrel relentlessly with very wide parts of our range. So it's really quite similar to what we've seen so far, and hopefully the trend is obvious to you guys. The most important factor in constructing your range on the turn is how good or bad the turn is for your range. So if it's a reasonably good turn for your range, you can be more liberal with your combo choices and choose some gutshot type hands to go along with those straight draws and those flush draws. If the turn is really bad for your range, those complete nick air balls go into your check folding range and you continue with your higher equity bluffs only. Remember, it's completely okay to check raise the flop with 9-7 on king 8 deuce and then just check fold an offsuit 3 turn. Yeah, I mean, because those are two independent decisions, right? You check-raised the flop, which was a profitable independent decision. Didn't work out. They called. They they have something. They have a little something-something. Who knows? Maybe it's just ace-high, but maybe they have a pair, a set, an overpair. Who knows? Then you've bricked the turn. You don't have to just keep firing away at it. Your soldiers are out there, yes, but sometimes you have to sacrifice a soldier uh, <laughs> to survive and, you know, win the battle and then win the war. That is poker. Very dramatic way to end it there, but... You know, nothing wrong with that. So we've really just scratched the surface of this topic. I mean, we've covered three boards, a handful of different types of turns. If you really want to dive deep into how to play turns and rivers after check raising, you have to join the Upswing Lab and check out Gary's module on this very topic. The module is called So You've Check Raised the Flop, Now What? And I'm going to give Gary a few seconds to tell you all about it. So one of the really cool things about this module is that we actually took a really deep dive into seabedding frequencies and strategies as well. So not only do you get the benefit of looking at, you know, you've checked raised the flop, I what, i.e. how do you play the turn? There's a lot of seabet stuff in there as well, you know, really broke down the different types of seabets that you want to use, the different sizes of seabets that you want to use on different board textures. And then the module really goes into a deep dive in terms of, you know, all the different types of turns in a variety of scenarios the different sizes that you want to choose and why in terms of, you know, which turns are really good for your range, which turns are really bad for your range. 
you know, really focusing on how you want to build your range based on the scenario, the size that you check raise to on the flop, how both players' ranges are constructed, and how to choose an appropriate range and size from there. Because my second module for upswing poker, I'm really happy with it, and you guys should check it out. Yeah, and with those videos, you get a bunch of downloadable spreadsheets to study mass data analysis. It notes optimal trends on different types of boards, so you can kind of study on your own in addition to watching the videos from Gary. It's really great stuff. Whether you study with a solver yourself or not, this is a really valuable module to watch, so I highly recommend checking it out. There's loads of other valuable lessons and resources in the lab as well, plus you get access to our members-only community where you can ask questions, get answers, and improve your skills through the power of friendship. As a listener of this podcast, you can get $50 off when you sign up for the lab with the coupon code LEVELUP. That's one word. Head over to upswingpoker.com and click the green button right between Doug Polk and Ryan Fee on the homepage to learn more about the lab and sign up. Once again, that coupon code is LEVELUP, one word. Thanks for listening. See you next time.